Good morning. <clears throat> I forgot my glasses at home this morning, so I found an old pair in the truck. So if I struggle to read at all this morning, it's because I'm wearing the old ones. They're not quite as strong readers as my others. With that disclaimer, <laughs> uh, there are a couple of things. There are some things that just kind of go together. When we think of one of them, we think about the other right away. Here's a couple examples. Peanut butter and jelly. Ketchup and mustard. Salt and pepper. Thank you. Bacon and eggs. Romeo and... <laughs> Thank you. David and Goliath. We just automatically, you hear one of those names or one of those things, and you think of the other one. They, we think of them in, in pairs. They're familiar to us. Recently, I was, I've been reading in 1 Samuel, and a couple weeks ago, I was reading in 1 Samuel 17, and uh, that familiar story, David and Goliath, caught my attention. And I ask you, why is that story so familiar to us? I mean, that is a story we hear from little up. The, probably some of the youngest people here are familiar with the story of David and Goliath. What's the appeal? Is it maybe because we tend to cheer for the underdog? Or is it maybe because it's good versus evil? We want to see good win? Or maybe because each of us can identify with facing giants. By giants, I mean something bigger than us that causes me fear. It's something... I'm out of control on. Since reading this several weeks ago, I've been thinking a lot about, so what are the giants that I face? <clears throat> what are giants we face today? So you can keep that in your mind. I want to I back up a little in history from 1 Samuel 17 and think briefly about when, when God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And he was leading them through the desert to the promised land. And they sent out 12 spies to go check out the promised land, check out the land of Canaan. And they were going to see what it's like and bring some of the fruit, come back and let the rest of the people know. And so they did this. And they come back, and it's recorded in Numbers 13, where they're giving a scouting report. And I'll just read verses uh, 30 through 33 of Numbers 13. Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. So they ran into giants in the land. Um, <clears throat> interesting thing is, if you go on through, and I'm not going to, put a lot of time into this, but if you go on through Israel's history, 
Well, you know the story. They rebel. They don't want to go into the land of Canaan at that point. And so God has them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until every one of those, that generation who was over 20 years old at that time, died. Those who, who didn't trust God to take them into the land when he said he would and give it to them. They all died except for those two, Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful and believed God. They wanted to go in. Interesting thing is, recorded in Joshua chapter 11, I'm going to flip there quickly. In Joshua chapter 11, um, we have recorded what happens when Joshua is the leader, verses 21 and 22. During this period, Joshua destroyed the descendants of Anak. Remember, these are the people they saw when the spies went in, the giants. They were afraid of. And Joshua and Caleb, those two men who were faithful, were directly involved in taking on those giants and killing them and driving them out. They destroyed all the descendants of Anak who lived in the hill country of Hebron, Debir, Anab, and the entire hill country of Judah and Israel. He killed them all and completely destroyed their towns. None of the descendants of Anak were left in all the land of Israel though some still remained in Gaza, Gath, Gath, and Ashdod. That was Philistine territory. So Joshua took control of the entire land as the Lord had instructed Moses, and he gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes. So the land finally had rest from war. So they destroyed all of the Anakim, except for in three cities in Philistine territory. They went there, and generations after they entered the Promised Land, the Israelites still didn't possess all of it because they weren't able to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. Judges 3, verses 1 to 3, tell us that God intentionally left some of the people there to test his people, to see if they would obey him. But too often, they didn't believe what God had promised them. God had told them that if they obeyed him, he would fight for them, and their enemies would flee. But if they disobeyed, their enemies would overwhelm them. God's people were in this cycle. They would rebel. Their enemies would overwhelm them. They would repent and cry out for help. And it was like this. It was just up and down if you read through the history of Israel. And it's easy for me to read that and from our vantage point, read it and say, what? Don't you all get it? Can't you see what happens? It's so clear. Why don't you just obey? But if I'm honest with myself, I can see myself do the same thing sometimes. You know, I think I am more like they were than I'd like to admit. So they would, rebe- they would rebel, then they'd repent, cry out for help. God would help them. When everything goes good, they'd repeat the cycle. So jumping ahead in history again, we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I want to make note of something there because it affects the chapter I want to look at today. So 1 Samuel... 1 Samuel chapter 4. I'm just going to summarize quickly. I'm not going to read this chapter. I believe it's a familiar chapter to you. But 
here the Israel is at war with the Philistines again. The Philistines are a, a tall, warlike people who lived on the Mediterranean Sea. So they're along the, the west coast in what's today Israel, and they're a fierce, warlike people, and they attacked Israel, and they defeated Israel's army. In one day, they killed 4,000 men. The Israelites got together and said, look, what are we going to do? They're just, they're really beating us. And they came up with a plan, and they said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence is. We're, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll take that into battle with us. By the way, this is what the Philistines did. The Philistines were very religious, and they took their gods into battle, believing these gods would win the battle for them. And when the Philistines won, they would take their enemies' gods and put it in their temple. Well, so the Israelites took the, the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And you know the story. Eli, the priest's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, took it into battle. Well, the brief summary is the Philistines fought desperately when they saw this happen. And a great shout goes up when they brought it into the camp. The Philistines say, what's going on? They say, all right, men, we've got to fight like never before, or we're going to be their servants. So they do, and in one day, we're told they kill 30,000 Israelite soldiers. 30,000. I can't imagine that, but it's, it's, wow, that's a huge number. Imagine how many families that affected. The ark of God is captured, and carried off by the Philistines, and Hophni and Phinehas, the sons, two sons of Eli, are killed. And a man from Benjamin, we're told in verse 12, runs back. He's a messenger that takes back news of what happened in the battle, the horrible news. There's a rabbinic tradition that says that man of Benjamin who brought the news of the battle was Saul, who later became king. They also say, and this isn't scripture, but it's interesting to think about that and compare with what we know in scripture. They also, so they say the man who brought the news of the battle was Saul. They also say that Saul rescued the tablets of the law before Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, carried off the Ark of the Covenant and took it and put it in the house of Dagon, his god. <clears throat> So that background, before getting to 1 Samuel 17, Goliath was not an unknown person to the Israelites. They were terrified of him. They had seen him kill many people before, uh, before Samuel, 1 Samuel 17 ever happened. He had a reputation. Turning to 1 Samuel 17. It's a familiar story. I'm going to read it this morning. I'm uh, doing something I like to do at home. Occasionally I change what version I'm reading of the Bible just to read it in something different so that it's not so familiar that I know exactly what's coming next. And sometimes... 
I go, oh, I never thought about it like that. <laughs> so, reading from the NLT this morning. <clears throat> the Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Succoth in Judah and Azekah in Ephesdim. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on two opposite hills with the valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was nine feet nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor and carried a bronze javelin on his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam and tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come here, down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Let me pause just a second. Brandon, here's your couple-minute warning. <laughs> Brandon's my assistant today. He is every time I preach, but maybe he'll be more obvious today. <clears throat> Verse 12, now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at the time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed back with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days... Imagine that. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers. Give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain and see how your brothers are getting along. Bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts, as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon, the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. 
But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Paul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this with both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on and strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them, so David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that God rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. As Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of the army, 
Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know, Abner declared. Well, find out who he is, the king told him. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. Tell me about your father, young man, Saul said. And David replied, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. <clears throat> Going to stop there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about uh, this story that's very familiar to, to you. I want to notice, though, a couple people in this story. Obviously, David and Goliath, but let's, let's think first about Goliath. So Goliath was a survivor of the ancient race of Anakin. They were giants. They were legendary warriors. He was from Gath, and Goliath's size was nine foot nine inches. Now, I've never seen anyone that tall. Once, my dad and I were in uh, shock trauma, uh, University of Maryland Hospital in Baltimore, and I was walking down the hall, and Dad elbowed me, and he said, look at that man. <laughs> and I looked up, and there was a man walking toward us that was so tall, when he went through he got to these fire doors in the hallway. It was a long hall, about 100 yards long. And uh, there were these fire doors. So there was two normal-sized doors that were glass. And they had one closed and one open. And this man was so tall, he had to turn sideways and duck down like this to go through a 6-8 door. <laughs> so he was quite tall. For perspective... Who's, who here is about six foot or just a hair under? Okay, Darren, would you, would you come? I'd, I need a volunteer for just a little for perspective. <clears throat> now, <laughs> Darren's not a giant, but Darren looks pretty big next to me. <laughs> Most people look pretty big next to me. So, Darren, you're, are you exactly six or right, a little less? A little less, just under maybe. You are perfect because... I'd like for you to notice this picture over here. I wanted Darren to stay here. To, the man on the right is Robert Wadlow. He, he's 22 years old in that picture. He died at, uh, in 1940. He lived in Illinois. Died in 1940. He is 8 foot 11 inches. And his father, standing beside him, is almost exactly Darren's size. So can you picture how much of that man is above Darren yet? <laughs> it gives you a bit. His father is the same size as Darren, and here's this, this young man towering over him. Thank you, Darren. I appreciate it. So that's Robert Wadlow and his, and his father. The reason I put his picture up there, I found it interesting to look and see who are some of the tallest people living or who are modern-day people that we know both the height and the weight for. We don't know Goliath's weight, but a man did some interesting research, and I've lost his name, but he took half a dozen of the tallest people, and this was one of them, this is the tallest one, but he took the six tallest people that he knew of, uh, that we know both the height and the weight, and he averaged out um, and looked at uh, body mass index and all this and said you can get a pretty good guesstimate of what Goliath weighed. And he came up with over 600 pounds. 
Um, he said, that's not fat, because Goliath, we're told, is a warrior. Um, he's in shape. Actually, let me grab... Uh, Grab a friend out here. This is my pole saw, <laughs> pole pruners I use at work, and I didn't get this extended in time. I have it marked to give you a sense right there of how tall Goliath was. If I can get it to stay there. So I put Micah's biking helmet up top. This is how I would look standing next to Goliath. If, uh, by the way, I went with most, most commentators go with nine foot nine inches. There's some variation. Some would say nine six. Some would actually say a few inches over 10. Be that's because the cubit varied throughout history. But the, generally, they go with 18 inches. And uh, he was six cubits in a span, which is, would come to about nine foot nine. So, here he is. I'll leave him here, I think. Maybe he's not going to stay very well. <laughs> stay better there. I just want us to get a feel for what David was facing, what the rest of the Israelite army was facing. Brandon, could you give me the second picture, please? So, thank you. Here's, um, here's what an artist imagined Goliath looked like. And you'll notice his, his armor. He's got the bronze helmet. He's got the bronze coat of mail. Just the bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Um, there again, that's where... Most of them say it'd be about 125, between 125 and 150. Can you imagine carrying 125 to 150 pounds just right here? I mean, you have to be a big guy just to carry that, that weight. I wear a 30-pound backpack at work, and uh, it's heavier at the end of the day than it is at the beginning of the day, or it seems that way. But 30 pounds was nothing compared to his armor. Um, so he has bronze leg armor. He has a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders so he can reach back and grab it. That is not portrayed in this picture. But you'll see in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 17, he did have a javelin as well. Then his spear, we're told, has a shaft like a weaver's beam. And looking that up, it would be about two inches thick and over 10 feet long, because the spear was typically longer than the person using it. Um, so they estimate anywhere from 10 to 14 feet on the length of the, the spear. Can you imagine having something that long with 15 pounds out at the end, and then being able to use it? <laughs> Be tough for, for us to do. Then... Of course, Goliath had a sword. We know that. It's not listed in, in the first part of the chapter, but we know he had that because David pulls Goliath's sword and uses it to decapitate him. Then he's got, to top all that off, he's got the armor bearer in front of him carrying a big shield to protect his body. You know, Saul, King Saul in verse 33 says, He's been a man of war since his youth. Like, you can't take him on. 
This guy's a trained warrior. So he's not a real young man, but he's something to reckon with. Um, where Goliath says to David, am I not a Philistine, or as this translation has it, am I not the Philistine champion? Um, Jewish tradition states that Goliath went on to boast that it was him who killed Hophni and Phinehas and took the Ark of God. He reminds him of that and carried it to the house of Dagon. He also bragged about, the Jewish tradition says he bragged about how many Israelites he had slaughtered on many different occasions. So there's this emotional warfare going on as they approach each other. Goliath, you know, you look at this picture, it's, a, it's pretty terrifying to think of taking him on. Goliath was such a terrifying sight that the Israelite army ran in, in fright as soon as they saw him, which was exactly what they wanted. You know, where was Saul? Let's think about Saul a little. Why wasn't Saul fighting Goliath? You say, well, he's the king. Yeah, well, the king's fought too. And 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2 says that there was not a more handsome person than he, Saul, among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was a big man, and he stood out. That's what we're told when Saul was anointed as king. Now, we remember that Saul had probably seen Goliath in action on the battlefield. Saul knew he was no match for him. And if we look back one chapter in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. The Spirit of the Lord had come on him when he was anointed as king of Israel. But when he disobeyed, when he refused to listen to God, gave partial obedience, we're told the Spirit of the Lord left him. I think that's one of the big differences between Saul and David. I want to notice another person in this story, Eliab, David's oldest brother. He mocks him. And if we would look back again in, uh, in the last chapter, in 1 Samuel 16, Verses 6 and 7, when Samuel the prophet goes to anoint David, God sends him to Jesse's house. And he said, you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king over Israel. But he hadn't told him which one before he went. And so he goes, and Jesse has his sons come walk before him. There are eight of them. And the first one, the oldest, comes, and he thinks, wow, now this is the, let me, let me look back so I can quote it. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Apparently, Eliab had stature. He was big. He had appearance. He was handsome. Because God tells Samuel not to look at those things. We're not told exactly how David looked. We're told that he was ruddy. I always assumed that meant dark-complected. It's interesting. Um, 
Most commentaries say that probably means he had red hair and was fair-complected, which was unusual. Um, I don't know, but he apparently wasn't as, as big a person. David's willingness to fight Goliath exposed Eliab's fear. To cover his shame, he mocked David, made fun of him. You know, there will always be those who stand on the sidelines and mock a person who is willing to take a step of faith. We can't allow that to keep us from it. I'd like to think just a bit about David. Historians believe that David was a teenager. We don't know his exact age. Probably upper teens is about the best guess. We know that he was a shepherd who fought to protect his sheep. We saw that in the chapter. He was also a poet, a musician. He played the harp for Paul's, uh, Paul, Saul. So in the, in the court of the king. So he was a very talented musician. When, when David was anointed to be the future king of Israel, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says, the spirit of the Lord came on him from that day forward. That made a dramatic difference between David and Saul's response to the threat of Goliath. David's response to Goliath's challenge wasn't just a sudden rise of courage, but it came from David's relationship with God. It came from time, David spending time alone with God. There was a reserve, there was a relationship to pull from. You know, I think some of the Psalms from David's early life give us a glimpse into David's view of God. I'd like to look very briefly at just a couple of those. I left my other Bible down here. <clears throat> Thank you. I want to turn very briefly, read the first couple verses of uh, Psalm 19. I believe these psalms were written when he was very young. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. I'm going to pause there. Picture David. As a shepherd, he's out the night sky looking up. He spent a lot of time out there. And he's thinking about when he looked at the heavens, when he looked at not just the, the clouds right here close to us, but at the stars, the planets beyond, and thought about how vast they were. It, it spoke to him of the greatness of God. And he didn't think about it only in his context there in Judea, but that he said that goes out through all the world, everywhere. People can look up and see what God made. It should say something to us about the greatness of God, the Creator. The skies display the greatness of the Creator throughout the world. If you spend a lot of time out in nature, which David did while herding sheep, 
It's easy to stand in awe of the one who created it. And flipping quickly to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, read verses 3 to 8. Here you have the voice of the Lord in the storm. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He also makes them skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like the wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. David saw God's power in storms. Spoke to him about who God was. There's another psalm that's very familiar to you that was written when David was very young. And that's Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord, David saw the Lord as the shepherd's shepherd. He saw God caring for him in his personal ways. He cared for his individual sheep and knew them well. To the point that David doesn't fear death because the Lord is with him. All-powerful God. David knew that God was much bigger than Goliath. There was no comparison. So he could look at this huge man who defied God and think, what? You guys are going to let him do this? He's no, he doesn't stand a chance with God. David knew God was much bigger than Goliath, and Goliath had challenged God. You know, David comes with a shepherd's staff and a sling. These were things that he carried every day in his line of work. You know, I have my, my grandpa Beachy always carried two things in his pocket. I'd, it always tickled me. It didn't matter where he was. He could reach in the pocket on one side. He had these pockets on the side of his leg, on the thigh here, and he could reach in there and pull out a pliers. And on the other side, there was a screwdriver. And he always had those two things. If he'd have been younger, he probably would have had a Leatherman <laughs> or some kind of multi-tool. But he always had those with him. Those were just kind of the tools of the trade. He, he loved to tinker with engines and get, keep things running well. We always had those with him. For, for David, that was a shepherd's staff and a sling. Brandon, if you could come up. <clears throat> so I have a staff here. I don't know if this is exactly 
what David had or if his was straight, but a stick, Goliath called it. What? You're coming to face this warrior with a stick? He doesn't even mention the sling that, that uh, Brandon has. And I'll let Brandon tell you a little about his sling and how he uses it. <laughs> Which you can use it like that, but it is very inaccurate when you let go. You have no idea where it's really going to go. So instead of overhand, we'll probably underhand like this, because you can get a lot more power on it. And another thing is, you don't want to go round and round and round and round. <laughs> because, again, it's not as consistent. You want to go one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to borrow a helmet? Because I think he's, I think he's going to let this fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does feel has a pretty good way to do it and very accurate way to do it because you just get a straight line, you throw it straight, and it's gonna be pretty close. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Brandon. So, David shows up with this and something like Brandon had there. No wonder Goliath looked at him and mocked. I mean, you're gonna fight with that. My point is, God used what David had. And the most important thing David had was the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And he moved the direction of the Spirit of the Lord. Each of us who have submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us in John 14 that the Spirit is our comforter and our guide. Like David stepped out in faith, moved by the Holy Spirit, each one of us can be comforted and guided by the Holy Spirit as we listen to His gentle whisper. I'm going to turn quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> Read verses 6 to 9. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You know, Goliath roared his challenge, intimidating the Israelites, and Satan roars to cause fear. God calls us to resist Satan 
and like David, move forward in faith, in step with the Holy Spirit. Are there giants in my personal life? Yeah. Are there giants in your life, in your personal life? Are there sinful habits that day after day keep taunting me? Are there giants that I face? Things that are too big for me and they cause fear. Financial stress. Health problems. Fear of failure. Strained relationships. Death. Death is the last enemy. I want to remind you that no matter how big the giant is in front of you, God is infinitely bigger and is not surprised that you're facing a giant. He knows all about it. He knew it was coming. He's not surprised. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us that God provided you with everything you need for life and godliness. God is able. I'd like to pause. I just invite you to close your eyes. I'd like to give you a moment of silence. And ask you, what is the giant that you will face today or this week? And I'll give you a moment of silence to talk to God about the giants that you face. Thank you, Lord, that you are here. you care. Thank you that you know everything each one of us faces. Thank you that you are able to handle any giant we face, even if things don't look exactly like we wish they would. Thank you that you aren't surprised and you will walk with us. Lord, may we turn to you first or anywhere else when we face a giant. May we move in step with your spirit this week. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for being here. You're dismissed.